Okay. So as you get down to the end of chapter three, you have affliction, suffering, uh, and as mentioned, I just put out a few there. First against the Thessalonians, one chapter six, two chapter 14 and 15, and then kind of this whole paragraph, three, one through five, and then against Paul. And Paul mentions it because uh, that's something that binds them together. So he talks about their affliction, it's like his affliction, and they are in this together. So in reading this, you know, you have to wonder where is this affliction coming from, and then what sort of affliction is it? All right, that's where we're going to try to answer that, those questions. Now at the same time, all this mention of affliction, Paul also talks about joy, brotherly love, and a deep desire for community. So that, that's something that's kind of held in balance here. There's a lot of bad things happening, but at the same time, Paul is talking about these, these, these great things that are happening. So, given a normal response, we only think of joy uh, when afflictions have passed or they're beforehand. We don't normally think of joy in the midst of afflictions and or suffering. So, um, we're going to answer those questions too. All right, now, um, but before we get to those uh, questions, I have a basic question up there in the front. Have you ever thought about what makes Christianity special? And uh, what, would, what would your answers be? Hey, you're a Christian. What makes Christianity so special? I'm a guy walking down the street, never heard of uh, Christianity. I don't know who Jesus is. You're a Christian. What makes, what makes you so special? Or your faith so special? All right, Nancy. Well, especially if you take the context of the other Middle Eastern religions, grace. Grace. Okay. And what do you mean by grace? Okay. Don't have to do anything. Forgiveness of sins based on the merit of Jesus Christ. Okay. Excellent. Anybody else want to, you know, nuance that? Or, I mean, that's a good answer. So, uh, Katie. No, I was, some, a different one is that our God came into this world as a helpless infant. Okay. Helpless infant. Excellent. Shirley, what were you going to say? I think the answer Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. God uh, is a special God, comes as the form of a man, bears our sin. Heavenly Father. Okay. So God cares, and then how does he care? By sending his son to bear our sin and rise again for us. Cindy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, the specialness of Jesus of yeah, of Jesus is dying. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. All right, interesting. Okay, good. Um cool. This this probably is the fundamental question we're gonna answer by the end of today. Okay, so I think uh all right, so 
you mentioned suffering. Okay, that was that's so Thessalonians. Oh, hey, they can kind of understand that the death and resurrection. They understand that because that's mentioned in in Thessalonians. Um, all right. Now we have to understand our cultural context because um, I think that plays into what we're doing. So, were Christians the only ones who believed in the resurrection? All right, so we already kind of, I kind of let the bat, out, cat out of the bag when we first started this. So you probably, if you remember, and, but if you're new, you wouldn't remember this, that Christians were not the only ones who believed in a resurrection, a resurrected God. Um, I'm going to show you a little video. Oh, Rachel. Uh, uh, okay, yes, uh, good question. At the time of Thessalonians, it was exclusively Jesus. Now, as uh, in, in following that, there are certain heresies or uh, well, sects or cults that use the name of Jesus, but I mean are clearly are not even remotely Christian. So yeah. But like in this instance, it would be, yeah. But like as you come later, there is something kind of a general term of Gnosticism, which comes out of the Greek kind of philosophical tradition. Nos, uh, gnosis is like the Greek word for knowledge. And th this Gnostic tendency was the, like this secret, oh well, hidden, or secret, secret's probably a better way to say it, secret knowledge of God. And these teachers need to kind of tell you about it. But it's always associated not with the biblical narrative, but with kind of Greek mythology. But they talk about Jesus. Jesus is this salvific character. Um, and, and actually, 1 John, one could see already uh, someone teaching like against that, like, you could see these tendencies kind of already creeping up even in the New Testament. But given the Thessalonians' circumstance, yeah, it doesn't really apply. So, all right. Anyways, so just disregard that. Um, okay, so uh, interesting little video. Uh, a little disclaimer. The guy who's speaking is Rob Bell, who, he's the walking man, or he's not walking in this. He made these videos like 10 years ago. He's come into a different light in the last few years by writing a book on hell, and he doesn't talk about hell, okay? He just does a very good job of kind of explaining the cultural and religious context of kind of these first Christians. Generally speaking, it applies entirely to the Thessalonian circumstance. Specifically, no, because he mentions different gods, and we'll come back and mention the specific gods that... Uh, would apply to Thessalonica. Um, but his discussion about kind of the civic or royal theological perspective is pretty much spot on. And we'll talk a little bit more specific about that. It's, it's uh, uh, yeah, okay. So it's, it's, I, I, I think it's neat. Okay, he, he stops talking about religious and political things and then goes on to some more applicable Things that actually don't, we don't necessarily need to deal with. Um, all right, so hopefully you found that kind of interesting. Um, to a certain extent, I just want to, another little disclaimer is that he kind of 
generalizes maybe just a little bit too much, but not, not drastically. It's not like, you know, night and day. Uh, the one other thing, too, is that his discussion of some of these, these biblical terms that we've heard, gospel, church, uh, they also have a Jewish background. But for those who aren't Jewish, this would be the frame of mind that they would be hearing this, which is applicable to Thessalonica because um, it, you know, they got kicked out of the synagogue and the, the congregation in Thessalonica were, was heavily Gentile or heavenly pagan. So that's why I thought you know, I would show you the video. Um, all right, so after, you know, after you're watching this video, were Christians the only ones who believed in resurrection? Well, the answer obviously is no, and to a great extent, no. Now, religious life in Thessalonica, uh, he mentioned Mithra and Addis. That, that wasn't really popular in Thessalonica, but uh, the cult of Serapis, who also is, uh, has an Egyptian origin, so which is kind of interesting, because the gods of Egypt that were conquered by Moses still are around. I mean, holy smokes, thousands of years, right? Okay, um, and then the cult of Dionysus and the cult of Cabrias, and uh, that one's probably the most popular. Without getting into the details, because a lot of these, uh, there's not a lot of details in terms of their rituals, but uh, most of the archaeological information that's found are on inscriptions, on walls, and on buildings. And they briefly kind of talk about what these cults believed. And just to give you an understanding, too, that these cults were around all the way into the 4th century. Uh, Cabreus might have been into the 5th century. So 400s. I mean, so we're talking, they were around for a while. They were, they were obliterated finally by political kings who called themselves Christians, and they went around and destroyed and burned. And so, I mean, the message of Jesus and all that, you know, I don't know. So they might have a problem there too. But okay, but that's beside the point. All right, so what can be, uh, so Serapis was Orisus and Isis, two Egyptian gods, father, mother. They kind of were put together by uh, Pletomei the first, and uh, came Serapis, the Egyptian and Greek kind of influences into this one god. Um, but things that are important for us is uh, kind of claims of salvation, eternal life, some of the rituals were centered around humility, confession of sins, and repentance. Okay, so the Christian claims of repentance and confession of sins, again, not too different. Uh, the nocturnal initiation, we'll talk about that in a second, in that quote from uh, Karl Donfried. He, he, very, he's a Lutheran, but uh, yeah, he, he's pretty smart. Anyways, cult of Dionysus. Uh, Dionysus was, uh, this is where Matrix Reloaded would be really helpful to watch. Or if you want to enter into Nerdville, Andrei Rublev, uh, a Russian film by Andrei Tarkovsky. Andrei Rublev is a four-hour movie. But there's a great scene where Andrei Rublev, the iconographer, is making this journey from the, his monastery to this uh, the, the Greek iconographer. And... Uh, along the way, at nighttime, he runs into this 
cult that's doing this nocturnal initiation. It's uh, it's it's uh, they show they show more of people in the Rublev one, but the one in Matrix Reloaded is definitely more offensive, I think, even though there's not as much skin shown. So you want to watch this after the kids go to bed. Um, uh, but, but I'm like, uh, uh, irony of ironies, I thought, I, I would just look up on YouTube to see if there's maybe like an edited version. What was funny is that uh, somebody decided to put a soundtrack to The Matrix Reloaded and the sound, uh, the music is, is called Afro, uh, Aphrodite's. I'm like, holy smokes, if this is not appropriate. Aphrodite's was not in Thessalonica, but very popular in Ephesus. And uh, oof. Uh, I, write, I write sensually provocative. It, it definitely was. All right, but, but Dionysus, though, it was a nurturing tendency uh, along with the Joyce afterlife. And what was big in Dionysus was, was the symbol of the phallus. And the reason why I mentioned that is because um, we, while we see that, we're like kind of offended and we're like, who would take this seriously? Uh, that was very popular back in those days. That was a symbol of life giving. Um, but along with that, though, it, it's very sensually provocative. Uh, Dionysus was the god of wine and joy, and so they had these... Uh, nighttime rituals uh, on the like the hills around Thessalonica that involved a lot of weird things. I mean, I didn't write them down, but they're a lot of naked bodies. Holly. Oh yeah, see that's next week. We're going to talk about that next week. That's right. So as we're starting to read this, hopefully your own reading of Thess Thess uh, Thessalonians. We'll start, oh, okay, interesting. Um, yep, chapter 5, very important. As you read this, you're like, hey, wait a second, that's okay. Now, the cult of Cabreus uh, was probably the most popular, that, that, that has the most uh, archaeological information. The one thing about Thessalonica that's hard for uh, researchers is the fact that the, uh, the city is built on the city. I mean, there, it, this has been a city in continual use for thousands of years, so it's not like they can just start digging up stuff because people are living there. I mean, you know. So this is uh, a variety of circumstances have come to this archaeological information. But um, Cabreus, the cult, was. Uh, uh, what was interesting about him is that he was for the poor and marginalized. So as you, you kind of hear Rob Bell, this is a Christian distinction. Yeah, maybe not so much in the Thessalonica because Cabreus was for the poor and the marginalized. And what's interesting about him was he's a martyred hero. He was killed by his two brothers, and he was buried in Mount Olympus. I, I didn't actually write that down. Um, with a crown and purple robe. And but he's expected to return, come back, to help the poor and marginalized. Um, now. I didn't put this in here for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, as Caesar came to power and had a lot of these like godly associations, people in Thessalonica, one theory is, is that they took the cult of Cabreus, at, this is the Roman rulers, and said, I'm, I am the, I'm Cabreus. So the Caesar is the resurrected form of Cabreus, actually. 
So that's how some of the divine claims got. Now, but that wasn't in Thessalonica. That's from a city called uh, Samothrace. If you read in Acts, Paul winds up in Philippi through Samothrace, I think. Thessalonica, or anyways, they're really close to each other. So they, they're kind of making these assumptions, hey, they're kind of close, it must be the same. But yeah, I don't know if that's true or not. But the, uh, okay, anyway, so if you take a look at that again, emphasis on nurturing life like a nursing mother. That's uh, chapter 4. I'm sorry, chapter 2, where uh, Paul says, I love you like a nursing mother. Uh, they also had some strange uh, revelry. Uh, some strange nocturnal initiation rites like Dionysus, al along with the phallus again. But you had this promise of a blessed afterlife. All right, now again, so we got to put ourselves into the first century cultural context, and these people aren't idiots. They're not, you know, we don't want to look down upon them, but we see this and we're like, you know, come on. Anybody take this real seriously? But they did, for a variety of reasons. Uh, the thing is, though, the same kind of accusations leveled against Christians, too. Like, come on, do you you, come on, do you really believe this stuff? Are you kidding me? Um, so, you know, we don't want to necessarily kind of put ourselves outside this. But what's interesting here now, and I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, is that there's a, there's a uh, quote here by Don Fried again. There's no evidence that just because the God had an element of resurrection in its theology, did people believe it was for them. Uh, there wasn't any certainty of salvation or afterlife for the people. And so Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 about the hope. We don't want to be, we don't want to grieve without hope like those other people. Well, why would he say that? And that's why. So even though there is these popular religious uh, cults in Thessalonica, and it's not like there was an atheist walking around in Thessalonica too. That's another thing that I, I mentioned a few, uh, there might have been, but Participation in these religious uh, rites were very common. I mean, people just did it. So there was a social function in a lot of these religious beliefs. But as I said before, not everyone necessarily said that was for me. This is, you know, this happened to this God, and because it happened to this God, we should, uh, you know, look to them, pray to them, because if we don't, well, they're all powerful, bad things might happen to us. All right, now the thing is, though, is that so some of the, some of the affliction, and, so I would say some of the affliction results from this aspect because now they're disassociating themselves from a very normal life, kind of the, the normal life of Thessalonica. Now, again, if, if uh, going to a rave party is, is, you know, part of your theology, I've never been to a rave, and I, I probably will never go to a rave. Um, yeah. yeah, a big party, something fun, uh, and you're not doing it. You know, people are going to be like, well, why not? So now you have to like say, okay. All right, now there's more to this, though, because there's the civic religious life, and that, that's also what Rob Bell had mentioned. And that is probably the point of tension that I would probably accentuate the most in Thessalonica, is that it's not so much the difference in gods, it is the 
civic religious life that the Thessalonians come into conflict with. And that's from Acts chapter 17. We read that a while ago. That's where Paul and uh, you know, Silas and Timothy get kicked out of the synagogue. And then these, uh, these uh, Jewish people go to the magistrates and say, we got these guys who are turning the world upside down. They're talking about there's another Caesar, and, he, and they're going against the decrees of Caesar. All right, so a lot of times we think of decrees of Caesar as like laws. These weren't so much laws, uh, but uh, actually like public oaths that people did. Sort of like the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, but a lot more dramatic. You'll see in a second. So first, Tiberius, 16 AD, there's somewhat of uh, uh, archaeological credence to this, like, uh, he puts this ban on prediction or prophecy or, like, public kind of preaching. and So that might be it. But there is three things that are part of Thessalonica that are pretty interesting. One is an oath of personal loyalty to Caesar's empire or house. And you can read it. I swear that I will support Caesar Augustus, his children and descendants throughout my life, in word, deed, and thought, that in whatsoever concerns them I will spare, spare neither body nor soul nor life nor children, that whenever I see or hear of anything being said, planned, or done against them, I will report it. And whomsoever they regard as enemies, I will attack and pursue with arms and sword by land and by sea. Um, now, the one thing that we don't know too much about this is, is exactly how this was uh, implemented, but it is, it is public. I mean, it's around. People would know it. Now, given Acts 17, okay, this kind of explains something. You have these men who are speaking of another king or another Caesar. Well, what's their job? They need to report it, so they report it to the magistrates. Okay. Now, in Philippi, does anybody know, remember what happened to Paul and Silas, theoretically maybe Timothy too, uh, in Philippi? Not just in prison, though. I mean, yeah, this is where they were beaten. They were uh, attacked, pursued with armed swords. Yeah. So this not only explains Thessalonica, but this also explains Philippi. Kind of interesting. Yes, so the Caesar character I'm most familiar with yeah. is in Gladiator. Right. So is Gladiator's a little later than Caesar Augustus. But yeah, same guy. Now, he, uh, who's, who's the guy in Gladiator? What was his name? He was, no, no, I mean the, the, the Caesar. He was one of the last ones. Because wasn't Marcus Aurelius the, the guy that was in charge? Yeah, 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 okay. Um, uh, by that time, claims of divinity had started to be broken up by then. Okay, but he theoretically still was all-powerful. But I think in the movie, though, right, part of that Caesar's diabolical plan was to, again, kind of reclaim this great power from the Senate, I think, too, right? Okay. At this time, though, Caesar, well, starting with Julius Caesar, which we'll see, I think I had that down there, and, and then moving on to Caesar Augustus, who is the adopted son of Julius Caesar. He was the, he was the emperor. He was the, so it was the difference of balance and power. So it kind of, it's a religion, 
I, I don't know. I don't know what that means. Mafia. What do you mean by mafia? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, yeah. So, but the thing is, though, these claims of uh, uh, exclusiveness shouldn't sound too strange because some people say that. Now, the thing is, though, is that, so hang on, though. What's that? Well, I was just going to say, right. So, divine right of kings. You, this person's put in power by God. Why would you go against God? And if you do, then maybe you're an enemy of God. And you know what happens to people who are enemies of God, who don't believe in God. Well, you need to put them, you need to get them out, put them in hell. I mean, if you want to use Christianese language. Yeah, well, not only, yeah, you're helping God. You are a good servant of God. You understand, though, so if people take this seriously, then, you understand, then, the persecutions of the early Christians, it all makes sense, because they are being, what? Good citizens. So that explains a lot of the strange weirdness, even in the 20th century. But that's, that, that's, that's bad. Don't, you don't want to do that, because that's bad history. No, no, I'm talking about, like, being good citizens by turning in, uh, uh, yeah, your mom and dad. So Nazism, communism, I mean, they had a religious allegiance, in a sense, even though they weren't, you know, a religion. For those in internet land, I'm doing air quotes. Okay. I'm trying to do better at helping those who listen. All right. Now, uh, so you take a look at the inscription. Okay, you looked at that. So the magistrates were on the hook for enforcing these oaths and then receiving complaints against violations. So everything just kind of fits really well with that. Um, now, within Thessalonica, we find out that they become sort of a kind of a free state. They don't have this huge tribute tax that they need to go to Rome uh, because a variety of history things. But because of that, though, they do set up these, these allegiances to the Roman benefactors. One is uh, Caesar Augustus. So you actually have a temple of Caesar built. Now, who's the adopted son of Julius? There's evidence that Thessalonica claimed Julius as God, which would make Augustus the son of God. All right. Holy smokes. All this stuff is actually true. Okay, we really find this strange. So now, talk about evangelism in this context. Okay, I grew up in a different Christian denomination. I remember going to, at that time, there was a park next to the Marathon County Library. A very nice park, in fact, and I wish they would still have it. But they built, they made the library bigger. You don't get me started on that. <laughs> also, Wisconsin. Um, but, in this park was a perfect direct path from the log jam and concerts and the public uh, parking lot. So people went to the log jam in the summertime, had to walk through the park in order to get back to their car, so it would be a perfect place for what? Street evangelism. <laughs> Me being a good Christian, packed with my tracks. I sat there with my buddies. And so we would talk about, uh, you know, did you know Jesus? 
Do you know where you're going to go after you die? Okay. So just think about how, uh, how I think about that. I thought about this this last week about, like, if I had these conversations in Thessalonica, it would ring completely hollow. Okay, good. You know, I know Cabreus is you know going to rise from the dead. He's going to help me out too. Why should I believe in your God? Oh, yeah. You know the well, Dionysus and Serapis—they promised an afterlife too. So, where am I going to go after I die? I don't know. I'll probably be with them. Maybe have a joyous afterlife. Well then, so now, so this is, okay, so this goes back then in terms of how we define Christianity and the Christian life. When I grew up, the Christian life was always defined by uh, what I didn't do. Okay, again, thinking about Thessalonica. Okay, you're not going to do this. Now, Paul actually says this. You're not going to participate in these rave parties. Anybody that's normal would say, that's a tough sell. Exactly. Why not? Because those are really awesome. (laughs) And I get points from the gods. All right. So... um, all right, so now with, re- okay, so before I, I got to close up this. So the civic religious life, now we come in direct conflict with society. Not only are we, we kind of like weird about our gods, but, you know, other people have other gods. That's cool, whatever. You want to believe in Jesus as your God? Okay, whatever. Don't worry about it. You might be a little bit odd, but you're not a threat. Now, as we... Talk about the civic religion. Now you are undermining the empire, and you become a threat. So these other cults didn't work in conflict with them, like the Romans. Like they, That's right. They sort of existed peacefully with them because they did. They coexisted. And that, so that's like, see, these people were not persecuted anymore. Anyway. No, okay. because you could you could be you could have the god of Serapis. And you still could run over to the Caesar temple and participate in the rituals. Yep. You could swear allegiance. And I'm using that language on purpose. You could swear allegiance to the state. I mean, I, I'm not necessarily against having the pledge in the schools, but I'm, I'm not going to battle over it either because for me there's a, some personal moral issues when I swear allegiance to the flag because I don't swear allegiance to the flag. I might use those words, but I really don't believe it. And if someone were to say that it means something more than some just kind of, I don't know, good civic, I would say, no, thank you. So anyways, not to raise the, stir the pot a little bit, but, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably alone on a, with a lot of people, but I don't I always find that interesting how I'm swearing allegiance. Yeah. Anyways, okay. All right, well, that's, that's a tangent. All right, so here we go. So how are we to understand chapter 1, verse 9, 2, 12, 5, 3, just to name a few, but also the word parousia. That means uh, uh, when, when Christ is coming, 
the meeting, the Lord, actually, I didn't ex that you would that would require you to remember from a few months uh, about a month ago. The word parousia is the coming of the em uh, emperor to your town, so the coming of Jesus to the town. The meeting in the sky is re in reference to meeting the Caesar. It's like this like big shindig. It's like a uh, church. It'd be like a church, like, hey, I'm going to church. I'm going to the meeting. Uh, same word. Um, and then the word Lord. As we're, so the Christians, and if you go to these, these things, you hear this not applied to Caesar, but applied to this Jesus. I mean, this is a huge threat to the fabric of Roman Empire society. Because now you could be viewed as a rebel or some kind of strange, uh, yeah, like you're, you're up to no good. It's interesting. We would think of some of these activities, many of them, as being, I guess, hedonistic or sinful. Right. And so if you, like I even think of um, people who are not Christian when you talk about their sins, and what are you talking about? Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like when I've talked to friends who are not Christian. Yeah, right. Well, the word sin only comes up in a religious context. You're a nice person. Right. It's interesting. If you're already doing all these things that we would say are sort of sinful. Sinful? Yep. Yeah. Um, and you like, people don't view them that way. So how do you get right. to say, I need God, because that would be the sole reason you need them. That's exactly right. And I think this is perfectly fine, because everyone's out there in the middle of the night dancing and, you know, whatever else they're doing. All right, so this is good, because uh, uh, Holly and Kirby both... Two pastors' wives. Um, actually, we're going we're to answer that question next week, and I'll give you a little preview because as you read Thessalonians, uh, Paul's like, hey, you're very faithful, you're doing a great job. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, he talks about like sexual morals. But all the rest of it is very like, hey, you guys are awesome, great job, you know, keep it up. <laughs> and then you're like, and it, it's funny because I probably just cruised, I've cruised through that beginning of the chapter 4 for a while, and it wasn't until last week I realized, wait, whoa, slow the boat here, slow down. Okay, Paul's got great, he can't wait to see them, he loves them, they're, they're being very faithful, strong in their faith, but he's got this advice now about sexual morals. And so I'm thinking, you know, why would he say that? Even though great brotherly love, they're, they're very faithful, are, are they still, they, they still need a little help with their, like, sexuality? Um, I don't know, years ago there was a series called I, Claudius, I don't know how many Right, does anybody remember that? PBS? I'd love, I'd love to see it again, I, I watched it 20 years ago when we lived in England. Right. It literally walks you through the, all the Caesars, it's a, like a 12 yeah, it's super long. It's unbelievable, though, because when you say, okay, for people who say the world is going to hell in a handbasket right now, you just need to watch this, because it was, it was a bigger yeah. of hell way back in Rome. Uh, it, it's just the most crazy thing. You may be like, holy cow, man has always been like this. Right. Yeah, debauchery, yeah, yeah, yeah you understand the word debauchery a little bit better, but clear. see the setting of... Right. And yep. Pitting against each other, or family members and poisoning. I mean, you actually can't believe that stuff that would go on. And so it tells you like that was just like probably regular stuff. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the tabloids were, they had plenty to write about back then. I mean, you know, I mean, in terms of, yep. We sound better, honestly. Well, so, yes, I would say that maybe that's, that's, maybe that's the danger, the temptation to say, boy, it's not so bad. I mean, we're, we're doing all right. Um, but, yeah, so, but again, so this is very interesting. Kirby brings up a good point that, you know, crazy things were happening back then. And, uh, and so, but the thing is, though, is that we have to kind of start asking ourselves, how does this fit to today, and how then do we live the Christian life in this circumstance? And uh, Lindsay, and then, and then we got to, I have just this last little bit here, so... Right. She said part of the reason it's dying so quickly is that it's focused on sexual immorality and right. And um, rather than the community, and well, I feel like when we focus on those kind of sexual immorality, that's kind of when we lose the argument. Well, and it's so so this is interesting. Okay, so we bring again. We'll talk more about this next week, or we have a longer conversation about this next week. Is that? Paul brings it up though, like he brings up like, hey, you shouldn't be doing, you shouldn't be doing things in this kind of negative sexual way, which kind of be like, oh, hey, that kind of like today, right? However, you have to take a look at the entire letter and say, I just base it on my own, my own reading of this letter. I totally have overlooked that, and and the entire letter is more about this, this great community that's being faithful and loving. And a cause for Paul to say, when I stand before God, you guys are going to be what I'm going to show God. Okay, but at the same time, he's got this little section in there where it's like, control your bodies, please. <laughs> so it, it's very interesting how... The, right. No, 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 that, that, is, that is how we're portraying, that's exactly. So that would go into the negative aspect, right? Uh, uh, oh, so, okay, so this is very good, Lindsay. Good, so let's just, I, I'll, I will answer, I'll ask the question in a little bit different way. Um, in, in the video, a little bit later, Rob Bell has this great quote and says, some people are fierce with reality, I love that phrase, aren't they? They don't have to spot out how, how they're right and everybody else is wrong because there is something going on inside them so powerful, so tangible, you can't help but ask them uh, the question. Sorry, I forgot a word. Uh, you're dying to know why they are the way they are. You want them to explain the reason for the hope that's within them. It's because when you're around people like this, you have this sense that you're in some way, uh, that you've in some way been with Jesus. So that is, that is a great, I love that quote. It's a good quote. Um, so the question, if people only had your life, now this goes back to the imitation that Paul is talking about. If people only had your life as the only example to look at, and they were asked the question, has Jesus risen from the dead? You know, what would they say? Has he? Yes or no? And so when we talk about what makes Christianity special, I think that's, that's it right there. If someone can see the faith of 
Christ in a person and they could say, I know Jesus is risen from the dead because of the church, because of them. Um, I, I think that would kind of put a lot of people, uh, you, you would win the argument is what I'm trying to say. Because I think even, I've had this, I had this conversation with Chris Ferrer many years ago and speaking about sexuality and things. Um, you know, for those of us who have friends and family who are homosexuals, if you just listen to the conversation out in public, I would say the church does not have the moral high ground. And I mean that in a positive way, like high ground meaning the moral argument. And I, I, and I, would, I would challenge you to just listen to that. And Chris Ferrer, when he, he started asking this question because he says, all my friends, I have a lot of acquaintances and friends who are uh, not Christian and some who are homosexuals, and when they hear I'm a Christian, they, they can't reconcile it in their head because their perception of Christians are, are basically people who hate them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like... So I had this whole conversation with them. I said, first of all, you, you must be doing a great job because they're asking themselves, wait, that, this is not right. This doesn't make sense. And then second of all, I said, you, you're in a really tough spot because in the public conversation, uh, Christians basically are, have lost the argument. They're in the low ground. Yeah. Um, uh, that's a whole other Bible study, and I, I said it at the end of this Bible study. So the question would be like, what do you do, or how do we do it? I think uh, you follow what the Thessalonians were doing, and Paul is advocating, which we'll talk about next week. Because we'll, we'll talk about um, Paul's advice to them, which switches in chapter 4. So Paul talks about, oh, hey, I know you're experiencing all this affliction, but you're doing a great job. You're, you're experiencing affliction in the You're having joy in the midst of affliction, and then at the very end of chapter 3, he says, kind of gives a little blessing to them. And then he switches. And he goes, now I'm going to talk to you guys about some things. Kind of how to handle your bodies. How do you look at those people who have died before you? Yeah, kind of a resurrection business, a parousia. And then some more info about, you know, what does it mean to be children of light? So, um, Okay. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Like I said last week, we weren't going to open the Bible that much today. Um, next week, though, if you want to do some reading, go ahead and read chapters 4 and 5 with the perspective of what we just talked about today. Like, why is Paul saying these things now?